Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of Paratalk on this week's episode, or should I say this very special episode, because I'm joined by someone who I've listened to their podcast for, I think, one of the longest times really. If you like ghosts, then you're at the right place because I'm going to have a really good conversation with this episode all about the paranormal and about the unexplained. Without further ado, I'm going to bring my guest in straight away. I don't want to waffle too much. I'm going to bring in the one and only Craig Bryant, who runs and hosts and uh, does everything with the the Paranormal Pendle podcast. Craig, hello. Hello, thank you, and thanks for that introduction. I'm um, I'm I'm very flattered actually that, that you've been a long time listener. I have, yes, I have. I I, uh, I discovered your show. Well, it was a while ago, quite a while ago actually. I've been working my way through all the episodes, and uh, I thought. I'd really like to get you on a on an episode at some point, but I thought the guy seems really busy. So I think my first question is: On where did the Paranormal Pendle podcast? Where did it come from? It's a love of all things unexplained. Predominantly the paranormal, predominantly ghost stories, predominantly ghost stories local to to where I live in in Lancashire, in rural Lancashire. Actually, I live quite close to Pendle Hill, hence the Paranormal Pendle podcast. Mm. Um, I'd written a book. I'd listened to a number of different podcasts from, from various different people. Some of them were, were professional, like uh, Howard Hughes' podcast from uh, from Talk Radio. Yeah. Some of them were, were a little bit more sort of my level, you know, doing it just for the fun of it. And I listened to, to quite a lot of the guests, and I thought, Do you know what, I'd actually like to, quite, like to talk to these people myself, and, and obviously, you know, having similar interests, and... I thought, you know what, I will just dip my toe in the water and give it a go. It'll probably be rubbish. Nobody will listen to it. And I'll probably give up after about 10 episodes, which I think is about the average number of episodes for a new podcast of any description. As you well know, quite hard work to book guests and, and find time yeah. to do it. And then you've got all the editing and, and, and everything else. But you do sort of get into a bit of a groove after a bit with it, I think. And, and the more that I spoke to people of different subjects, so paranormal ghost stories, Personal stories, personal hauntings, uh, UFOs, cryptozoology, all sorts of stuff. It just gave me the appetite to talk to more and more people. And I have spoken to some incredibly interested people and some incredibly nice people out there as well who are quite happy to give up the time to, to talk to to you about their experiences and, and what they think about certain subjects. And so it just sort of got on from there, really. And I'm I'm still doing it now. It's been probably about 18 months. I tried to get an episode out once every couple of weeks. I had a bit of a break at the back end of last year. Since the new year, I've come back to it. I've had some really great guests over the years, and I've got some really great guests coming up. That's the thing. What I've noticed is you've got to have the right mindset, like with anything, and especially with the paranormal and the unexplained you've got to have guests on that you feel you've got a, some form of connection with so you can get that kind of good conversation flowing it can be difficult and it can be quite tiring sometimes when you have to write a script make sure you've got the right questions to ask a guest because you don't want to ask questions that aren't really going to go anywhere where does your interest in the paranormal where does it go back from i mean as a child growing up were you interested in ghosts and, and the unexplained yeah i spent a lot of time with my maternal grandparents and and my my granddad Bill was um, was a great storyteller. He lived in a an old mill workers' house where I lived in East Lancashire. I, I grew up in a, a town called Accrington, which was very much a cotton mill town, and the housing was built over the years to sort of house the people who worked in in the mills. 
And so it was a very small house. It had, it, I remember back in the early 1970s when I was when I was a very young child, it still had the old original uh, range cooker in the, in, in the back room. And, yeah. and so we used to sit in front of the range cooker. And actually during the 70s, you'll probably remember because we are of a similar age, we had quite a lot of power cuts. And so basically what, what would happen is I would be sat in front of the range with, with my granddad and we'd have candles all around. And he would start telling me stories, and it'd be local legends, ghost stories. I mean, really, looking back on it now, you know, to a sort of six, seven, eight-year-old little boy, you know, some of these stories were probably, they could be quite scary. But, you know, I, I loved it. I, I absolutely lapped it up, and, and the whole atmosphere that, that he created, and this sort of candlelit atmosphere sat in front of the range. And so that's really where my love of, of the paranormal came from. And, and I've always been interested in ghosts. I've always been interested in the unexplained, as, as, as we now call it. So UFOs. And I think once I'd sort of become a teenager, it got pushed to one side. I wasn't really that interested in it anymore. And it was up, up until sort of like my sort of late teens, early 20s, I think, when I, when I started to get a little bit more interested in in the whole subject again and you know during the 70s i mean i grew up watching tv programs like um, ufo space 1999 the tomorrow people tales of the unexpected they fascinated me and i think they managed to sort of keep that spark alive in me of being fascinated by just creepy stories or spooky stories just your normal sort of ghost stories really the late 70s was a, a great time for kids TV and for that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I, if you could figure out an episode of Sapphire and Steel, then you knew you were going places. I, I hadn't got a clue what I was watching. No, I mean, um, I mean, the te- uh, Tales of the Unexpected was, was the one really that, that I still remember. And and it's strange, I've, I've come across a few of the episodes on satellite channel that nobody yeah. watches, you know. And there, was, there, were, there were two or three that, that I remember that were really, really scary. They've still sort of stayed with me to this day, you know. You've kind of grown up, you've got interested in the paranormal and you've sort of, you know, you've read yeah. your books or whatever. At what point did you decide, hey, I need to start going out and seeing if I can see a ghost? Well, it was never like that. The first time that, that I saw what I would class as a ghost just happened. I wasn't particularly looking looking for it. And in fact, I was I was only in my late teens anyway, so... The paranormal and ghosts and that sort of thing was was probably it was it was sort of shot to the back of my mind because at, at that age you know I was into music and football and going out with my mates drinking and girls and all that sort of thing. Although I still had an interest in in the paranormal, it wasn't foremost in my mind. And I was actually working. Well, it was a it was a private members club in Accrington. It's this story that, that I decided that I wanted to write a book, write the first book, The Shadow Man of Accrington. I wanted to write a book because this was the first story, really, that, that came to mind. And, and this was the first story that I committed to, we would say paper in the old days, but it was committed to screen, to word. Um, and I, I saw this figure, the Shadow Man, whilst I was working in, in this club. And it had been seen by numerous other people. I didn't know this until I actually spoke to to the guy who was the steward of the club and asked if it had happened. And it happened one night. It was midweek. I was working behind the bar. We were getting very close to, to closing up time. It was back in the old days when we used to close at sort of half past ten at night. There was nobody in the bar. And I saw this figure. I can still remember it now. It was very tall, thin, 
dark, shadowy figure. The thing that, that always stuck in my mind was, was the fact that it was wearing a hat. And it was sort of like a fedora type hat. Now, at the time, I didn't know about the shadow man phenomena or, or the slender man phenomena, as people call it, or the hat man. It's got various different names. And it was only later, probably about 10 years ago, when I was listening to, um, I think it was one of Howard Hughes' podcasts, actually, from Talk Radio. Um, and there was a, a researcher on there talking about shadow people. And I realized that what he was describing was what I'd seen all, all those years ago. I mean, we're talking sort of like mid-1980s when I saw this. It stayed with me all, all that time. And when I realized what it was, I started to do some research into it. I thought, you know what? This is something that, that I need to commit to writing a book about and starting off with that. And that was the first of my recollections that I actually wrote about and I did a, quite a bit of research as well. I spoke to, to family and friends. I was really surprised about the number of people who I spoke to who were quite happy to tell me about their own paranormal experiences. I had so much material from, well, certainly from family. My, my wife's family lived in a very, very haunted farm house. There were people that, that I met socially who, when I mentioned I was writing a book about the paranormal, they were quite happy to say, well, actually, you know, I've had a, an experience or I've, I've seen a ghost and or I live in a house where there is a ghost and all of a sudden I had so much material that I thought well I've, I've got to write a book and I wrote a book about just all these people's different experiences all my different experiences that I'd had over the years yeah that's basically how, how the book came about with your uh, research and your sort of you know you're investigating and you're putting a book together and you, you talk to a lot of people, you get a lot of different opinions and ideas of what is happening when people have an experience. Over the time of doing your research, have you started to put together a kind of a thought process on what, not saying exactly what a ghost is, but possibly what triggers a apparition or what triggers a haunting? Yeah, I think there are some uh, some similarities You've got various different types of, of hauntings to, that I can um, I can sort of identify. You've you've got your, your sort of classic um, poltergeist activity, so where you've got objects being moved. Now, as I said, my wife's family lived in a farmhouse, and they had classic uh, poltergeist activity. They had objects being moved. There was one occasion where um, a glass levitated and floated across the room in front of two of the family members, both both of who saw it. You've then got your sort of replay-type ghosts. So some people call it the stone tape theory, where you've actually got energy somehow which has been trapped or, or captured in a place, and there is some sort of trigger which releases that energy, and it, it plays time and time and time again. So one example of that in the book was a school that I uh, investigated, a secondary school, which, which was only about well the building was only about 12 years old but it, it was the ground on which the school had been built and what used to be there before there was replays of this woman uh, there was a lots lots of other paranormal activity actually but the main one was it was a sort of replay of a woman who they used to see on a regular basis and she would follow the same route through the school she wouldn't interact with anybody, so it was like a, a projection, a replay of something that had mm. that had happened in the past. I mean, the interesting thing about just going back to poltergeists, you know, 
people have theories that there are some sort of emotional triggers. Poltergeists seem to attach themselves to children who are going through puberty because of the emotional, high emotional state that they're in. Somehow manages to to attract these entities, perhaps to feed off that emotional energy. Who knows? There are obviously triggers with that particular type of phenomenon. The stone tape theory ones, again, there may be some sort of energy that is being given off by uh, somebody or something, which is creating these um, these replays. And then you've you've got your sort of interactive ghosts that are not necessarily poltergeists, not moving things around, but do seem to to sort of interact and seem to be sort of stuck in a place. Um, and can't leave a place, and they tend to be a little bit less prevalent, I think, than than the other two, to be honest. That actually leads me on quite nicely to my my next question that I was going to ask you was, we have a haunting, and uh, as you say, an old man walks through a building and he takes the same route every time, and it's it's just basically a replay. But you mentioned that a haunting where there's some Uh. form of intelligence where people seem to be able to communicate with whatever it might be. So that leads us to to consider that whatever that you are communicating with, is it a discarnate personality of somebody that used to walk this planet, or is it something else? I've spawned people who've told me stories about what are quite clearly time slips, for instance. So they've, you know, they've seen scenes that are clearly out of time. I mean, the famous one is Bold Street in Liverpool. It's uh, there's been several sightings of of that area, mm, yeah, which were clearly. I mean, one well, I think it was nineteen so nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, something like that. Another one was Victorian. There's one very close to where I live, actually, where I spoke to um, to a local lady who was absolutely adamant that that she saw a scene from her childhood that she actually so big because there used to be um, a, a cotton mill in the village where I live no longer here now it's been demolished and there's a housing estate on it but she claims to have seen people stood dressed in as she remembers her parents dressing in the 1950s when she was a child queuing up waiting to go into the uh, the entrance to the cotton mill and she's is absolutely adamant that, that she saw this group of people in the exact spot where she remembers the cotton mill was and the entrance to the cotton mill when, when she was a little girl. When I saw the shadow, the shadow man, the shadow person, I was convinced that it was aware of me. Well, it didn't try to communicate with me, but I got the feeling that it was aware of me. Now, are we looking at something that's coming through from a different uh, dimension? Are we looking at something that's coming through from a different time? Who knows? They are. The, these are the questions, really, that that we will probably never be able to answer. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm totally fascinated by time slips. Anything to do with time slips, I'll eat it up because yeah. I, I love that kind of stuff. Many cases throughout the years where people have gone and, and you know, we've got the, the case of the, the young cadets that went to the village and it was yeah. all as it was back in the early days. The two couples that were in, I think they went to France and they were on their way back or and they stopped at a small, uh, like a chateau and it was as if it was in the early 1900s and they thought it was just uh, something that was rustic and lovely. But when they went back to try and find the place, they couldn't find it. So there's loads of those cases out there and, and that kind of stuff really fascinates me because it, it makes me think, how are they literally slipping time or is it a more of a 
as I explained before on an episode, that more of the, the the kind of washing line effect, where I you know I I kind of looking at it from a point of view where maybe uh, time is like. Uh, a load of sheets on a washing line and they're blowing in the wind and now and again those sheets yeah. touch together and there at that point you have a connection between different yeah. eras everything that we've experienced on this planet is still if you had the ability to go back in time or forward in time yeah. it would be there but it's we haven't experienced it yet we're traveling on a two-way road and we're in the now but there is the future and the past and if you had the ability you could go back and maybe just maybe what we're experiencing when we go into a haunted house and we see an, an event that happens, that event that happened, you are just witnessing it because yeah. you are the trigger. Yeah. You are the catalyst. You are just ha yeah. making that happen. But, you know, anyway, moving on a little bit, because we could we could talk about <laughs> that all night. I, I Get me going on that. I wanted to talk about um, experiences, stroke no. versus evidence. Now, as you well know, there's an absolute, sea of podcasts out there there's a sea of youtube channels out there and everyone's doing their own thing when it comes to investigating and trying to find out is there an afterlife or oh. is grand still around you know um so what what constitutes evidence what what do you think in your opinion yeah. just in your opinion what do you think evidence is i think if you see something if you hear something i think certain people can feel things I often uh, describe it as, you know, sort of tuning into a frequency. Um, some people are more able to tune into a frequency of a place than, than others, you know, sort of like the old the old radios with dials, you know, you've just got to get the frequency just right in order to pick up a radio station. Yeah. I'm not big on uh, all this electronic equipment that people use. So I've, I've had discussions with, with people about this in the past. I don't, I don't see the the worth of it i don't see the the evidence that you know what it's telling you is correct if you get something on camera or you record a noise then fair enough but you know these spirit boxes and and all that sort of thing i personally don't you know would, would never use anything like that because I, I just don't think that they're useful at all i understand there are a lot of people out there who are fascinated by the paranormal and, and they're quite happy to to go along and pay money to spend a night in a, a so-called haunted location but the thing about hauntings and ghosts is that they don't as a general rule perform to order i just find it mm. quite amusing i mean we obviously know where this all started it was a particular tv show 15 years ago oh yeah um you know just because you're paying 50 pounds to go on staying a haunted jail all the night doesn't necessarily mean to say that that there is going to be paranormal activity and you're going to witness it you're very lucky if, if you do amazingly you know in order to keep people coming back you know they, they will hear things or or somebody will scream oh my god i've just seen a shadow in the corner sort of thing and i think it could just belittle the subject sometime to be honest so going back to your original question i will only believe something if i see it or i hear it pretty good at working people out when they're telling me something if they're being truthful or if they're spinning me a yarn probably about 95 percent of people that i've spoken to and especially when i was doing the research uh for the books i was pretty convinced by most of them to be quite honest with you i'm usually a pretty good judge character i think and and i can tell when people are being honest and and i think most people when they open up to you and they tell you the the stories I think a lot of the time they're actually quite relieved that somebody is taking them seriously. 
if you have a paranormal experience and you're not particularly a believer in the paranormal, it can be quite a frightening experience, I think, for a lot of people. And that's that's something that I found when I was when I was speaking to people about uh, some of the stories that are in the book. They were genuinely frightened by what they'd experienced. And I think that reaction is very difficult to take. When you decided to put a book together, did you find it difficult to say, well, this is going to go in it or that's going to go in it? How did you go about planning to put a book together? Basically put feelers out on um, on social media because I wanted it to be sort of Lancashire, really, and East Lancashire, which is, as I said earlier on, where I grew up. Uh, it was basically friends and acquaintances of friends, acquaintances of families, I had uh, several emails from uh, different people who had seen uh, Facebook posts asking for uh, for personal experiences for a book. They emailed me, um, and you know I either rang them back or, or we had discussions by by email. Basically, I, I just got so much material that I ended up writing two books instead of one because there was, you know, there was just too much to go into one book. So really it was just friends and family and acquaintances of friends and family and people who had been contacted by on social media. Did you actually do any on-site investigations to, to come inside with your book? Yeah, there are a couple. There was one which I did at, at the school that I mentioned. Um, I actually went round with one of the maintenance guys who, who worked there I sort of did a did an interview with him uh, as I was going along. I did actually put it out as one of the early podcasts um, because it, it really was quite an interesting discussion that we had. So yeah, there was that again. The interesting one about my wife's um, family's experiences. Spoke to to family members. Um, also spoke to a number of people. Um, I went round to a couple of houses where they lived where they'd, um, they'd had experiences. And, and I have to say, there was no, no, no paranormal activity when, when I went round um, at all. But I did get a feeling that, that they were being genuine because of, of the way that they were telling me the stories and the reactions and so on. So I'm not a big investigator. I will go into places and try and pick up on what's going on there if people want me to. But I'm, I'm not... I suppose it's because I'm, I'm not your sort of archetypal paranormal investigator as people sort of envisage them these days you know going in as i said with all this electronic equipment and doing overnight vigils and all all this sort of thing i i prefer to think of myself more as a researcher and a collector of stories rather than somebody who actually goes off and and does investigations and sports people on the podcast uh, they've invited me along to to go on uh, investigations and some of them i will take them up on at some point some of them I probably won't because of the time factor and um, some of the people that I've spoken to didn't really convince me all that much anyway. So Some of the places now can be so expensive to to have a, an overnight and it can cost a lot of money. Everybody's putting their prices up and uh, to find uh, a good places that are easily accessible, it's getting more and more, more and more difficult. Have you ever really been scared? when you've gone to the, some of these places? No, I haven't really, to be, to be honest with you. I felt uneasy, um, and I felt that there's been somebody there. So again, going back to the school, there was two or three locations within the school that I actually felt more uneasy than I would normally have done. 
Um, and there was a couple of places where I actually felt a little bit dizzy and a little bit queasy. I didn't like the locations that we were in. It wasn't just myself that picked up on this. Um, my wife was with me when we did that one. And my son as well, he was with us. Mm-hmm. And he didn't like a couple of um, locations within this building. And it was only afterwards that we were given some history of these particular locations. It turned out that, that we weren't the only people who had, had felt you know, these sensations. So that was quite interesting. I've never been scared by anything paranormal, really. I've been intrigued. Um, I mean, we've had some quite interesting activity in our house where I live now. Um, okay, o- yeah. Over the last uh, last few years, um, including some poltergeist activity about about 12 months ago now. And it, it's, doesn't, it hasn't frightened me. It's just intrigued me. And I'd like to know more, and I'd like to know what what it is that's that's causing this these things to happen. Is do you live in a, a an older home, or is it a modern? Not particularly. Nineteen thirties. I think it's attached to piano that we uh, we bought about um, or oh, about fifteen years ago now. It's an upright piano, and the reason we bought it actually is because a my wife is is musical. She comes from a musical background. Her family were musical at the time. Our son was was learning. He wanted to learn to play the piano. He was going through a phase of learning to play the piano, learning to play the guitar, and then he sort of, you know, hit his teenage years, and that all went by the wayside. So we've now got a piano that's just sat there that's gathering dust. But when we bought it, we we started to have some uh, bad luck. There were just things happened in our life that were not particularly pleasant, that were unfortunate. Um, and then we started noticing some activity. I started noticing some activity, shadows, seeing things out of the corner of your eye, strange smells, very heavy floral, perfumey smells, but not in the same room as where the piano is. The piano's in the dining room. Um, I was getting this in the kitchen and in the lounge areas of the house. My wife was picking up on things as well. She started picking up on seeing things out of the corner of her eye. My son also was was a little bit he kept saying that he didn't like going into the dining room because it was really cold and it wasn't it did feel much colder in there than it did in, in other parts of the house and then there was one particular occasion where we have dogs and i was taking them out for a walk and i was putting the leads on on the dogs in the hallway and we have a sort of um like like a vestibule so we have an inner door and an outer door mm-hmm. and, and the vestibule is only about probably about four inches uh, sorry four foot square it's only a very small space there was um, a piece of junk mail that had been shoved through the letterbox and it had been there actually for about two days i'd not had any any other mail pushed through by the by the post um and it had just because i could see what it was i just had too lazy to pull it through and just throw it in the bin so it had been sat there for a couple of days i was actually as i said i was putting the, the leads on the dogs all of a sudden this piece of junk mail just it was almost as if there was an invisible hand grabbed all of it from the inside and pulled it right out of the the letterbox and it dropped to the floor. And I know there was nobody outside who pushed it through because I could see through the glass in the door. There was nobody out there. There was absolutely no way that because, it, you know, it was stuck firm in the uh, spring mechanism of the letterbox. And so in order to pull a letter through, you, you do have to grab it and literally pull it. And it, it makes that metallic, sort of snapping noise, mm. you know, the spring snapping. And it did that, was as if there was an invisible hand that grabbed hold of it and pulled it 
It was right in front of my eyes. I literally saw it come out and drop to the floor. Now, even that didn't bother me. It intrigued me. And in fact, strangely enough, I just sort of looked at it and thought, well, that was weird. Carried on putting the dog's leads on. Went for a walk with the dog. Came back. And it was only after I got back to the house with taking the dog leads off. I thought, hang on a minute. That was really weird. And it, it took sort of like half an hour to sort of process that. How on earth did that happen? There was obviously something that had physically done it. Have you been motivated to sort of investigate your own home? Um, well, I, I, I do know the history of it. I, don't, I do know who lived here before, uh, but I don't think it's anything to do with that because all these things started once we moved the piano in, once we bought the piano. Now, I did some research on, on the piano, found out who it was manufactured by because there's a, a, a brass plaque inside. We basically, a, a guy came out to tune it up for us and obviously all the top went inside and, and there's, a, there's a plaque in there. So that's got all the details of where it was made, when it was made, and who made it, and a, a, a serial number. And it, it was actually made in 1905 in Leipzig, in Germany. It's by a company called Bluthner. Now, Bluthner have an outlet in this country, and I, I wrote to them, gave them the serial number, and they told me the history of it from when it left the factory in 1905, when it was shipped over to this country, who it was retailed by in this country. It was actually um, a retailer in Manchester on Deansgate, who were no longer there, but they told me the address and everything. And who it had been sold to, not the person, but the area. Uh, it was a house in a little town called Haslinden, which is um, sort of in between Blackburn and Manchester, um, sort of about halfway in between, near the Rosendale Valley. They said that as far as they were aware, it had, it had been in that same family the whole time up until the point where the retailer who we bought it from, he said he'd opt he got it in a house clearance. So it had been with that same family. So when something had, had attached to it and had come across to, to, to our house with the piano, um, I think that's probably the most likely explanation well yeah i i think uh with personal objects i mean a piano is it's an emotional object right. because it's something you play you have a you know the person that owns it and plays it they have an emotional connection to it if it's that old as well yeah. you know it could have it could have had a a very very interesting history and things like watches and jewelry and stuff like that uh, even clothes that people wear we've all got this kind of connection with our with the things that we surround ourselves with and and i think it's completely plausible that if that object in some way can be a, a consciousness, uh, whatever, uh. And can be attached to it, it will travel with it. So, you know, you look at houses and think, well, that, that, this house has got a ghost. Well, okay, well, obviously that ghost in some way is attached to that building or attached to that ground or that area, that location. So maybe the same, you know, it's the same set of rules for objects as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think... Um I think probably in a lot of cases, I think it's objects that are actually the focal point of this kind of phenomena rather than the actual uh, place where the object is. When I was at school, we went to a, uh, it was a workhouse and it had been, it was a museum mm. and they kind of made it as it would have been in the early days when it was actually a workhouse. Yeah. And I was only, a, a, you know, early teenager, but I still had an interest in but the unexplained and, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and all that stuff was around. So, you know, my mind was, was turning over. But and I remember going into that building and feeling, feeling not very happy. And, and it wasn't, I'm not a psychic or anything like that, but it was the feeling of yeah. being in that building and thinking, 
there were people in here that yeah. didn't want to be here, but they had nowhere else. They had nothing else in their life, and this was the only option. And you had whole families that literally lived in the size of a, of someone's kitchen. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever been to any of those museums up there? Yeah, I have. Um, there's, there's a very very good one, actually. It's, um, it's uh, south of Manchester near the airport called Style Mill. It was a cotton mill. And they've still got the, the machinery and everything in there and, and machinery still runs. And it's also attached to a school. So, so they used to have orphans who, who used to um, go to this school. And then they, they also used to work in the cotton mill as well. So that's all, all set up like a sort of working museum. There used to be another one at a place near Accrington, which unfortunately um, I think closed down. But that again was a, was a working working cotton mill and of course i mean this area around here where i live it, it was it was just it was where the industrial revolution really started mm. got two things really we, we've got a lot of stately homes a lot of you know big houses that, that the landowners used, used to used to live in we have a lot of uh, religious history you know between the, the catholics and the protestants and whichever monarch was in charge um depended on who was being optimized and and, and who wasn't there are a lot of the stately homes that, that we have around here um, have got ghosts and stories attached to them about priests, for instance, being martyred or got the famous White Lady of Salmsbury Hall, got the famous screaming skulls of Turton Tower. You know, yeah, yeah. The, you know there, are, there are literally dozens and dozens. And then we've also got the Industrial Revolution side of things where there was a massive explosion of, of the population people's life expectancy was a lot lower than it is now you have a lot of the old mill buildings that are still still here that people say have, have got paranormal activity in them again as i say where i live in in uh, it's a relatively small village but there was a there was a cotton mill here for for a long time and there is activity around that area i've sponsored quite a few local people who've you know told me different things about their experiences, what they've seen over the years, and it's all still linked into to the area where the cotton mill used to be. And it's because, again, there was a lot of you know very emotional times where where people had to work very hard. They they lived in very difficult conditions. They were very poor. They often died quite young from various different either industrial diseases or or just diseases in general because they were the lifestyle was 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 obviously not as uh not as as good as ours today you know we've got quite a quite quite good longevity really when it comes to to life expectancy so so yeah there's a lot of history in in the area around here and then of course we've got pendle hill which is synonymous with the pendle witch trials of of 1612 so you know it is a it is a very very rich area of, of of history with the witch trials and Pendle Hill. What was your kind of? Did you do a deep dive into that? Well, it's a story that that you sort of grow up with living in this area from a very early age. I I read books about the Pendle witches when I was a young child. We used to really look forward to Halloween because it was it was all always about the Pendle witches. And this is going back to you know way before the days of. of trick or treat and pumpkins you know we used to spend mm -hmm. two days hollowing out a turnip um or a swede you know rather than a rather than a pumpkin but it's it's just a story that you grow up with um living in this area and you know the, there's a lot of source material out there i've got two or three books that sort of get really into the ins and outs of the story and 
the evidence that was given and the evidence that was used. I mean, bear in mind that the actual trial itself, uh, there's only one contemporary record of what went on. So, you know, you have to, to a certain degree, hope that what was recorded was actually accurate. We'll, we'll never really know just how accurate Thomas Potts' recollection of trials and the evidence that was given actually was and, and whether it was sensationalised. Uh, because some of the evidence that, that was given and some of the, the claims and counterclaims of, of the people who were involved, quite amazing, really, some of the things that, that came out with, you know, really quite unpleasant accusations were, were flying around at the time. So, yeah, I mean, for I, I, as I mentioned before, I've written two books. The second book, well, in fact, there is a, there is a chapter on the pendle which is in, in both books. The first book is really, there's a chapter in there about the, the evidence that was given uh, at the trial, what happened at the trial, and how the convict, you know, the convictions were uh, were obtained. In the second book, I've actually gone back in time a little bit to the evidence uh, that was given during the investigation, which was done prior to these people being taken to Lancaster and, and tried at Lancaster. And and when you look into some of the the evidence that was that was put forward. And like I said, some of the claims and counterclaims of, of the two families that, that were involved. It's actually, it's a part of the story that, that most people really don't know about. They just know that they were taken to Lancaster and they were tried. Most of them were hanged. The actual uh, evidence and how the evidence was obtained and some of the questioning techniques is quite interesting. And also when you compare it to um, contemporary witch trials, because at the time, late 16th century, into the 17th century, um, there were a number of, of witch trials going on, especially in, in this country. Quite a lot in Europe, obviously, you have the Salem witch trials in, in America, and there are there are similarities mm. in in some of the some of the techniques that these you know these sort of witch finders in inverted commas were using. But the interesting thing about the Pendle witch trials is is that unlike contemporary ones in Scotland, for instance, the Berwick witch trials, yeah, I mean, they used torture to to extract confessions from people. As far as we're aware, that was not the case with the Pendle witch trials. That the, a lot of the evidence was actually were told was voluntarily given, which would seem to add a little bit more credence to the fact that these people actually believed what they were saying. Mm, so, yeah, I, I'm yes yeah, it. The, the problem is that we've only got sort of, as you say, Contem contemporary reports from people and you have to sort of read it and think about, well, is it, what is it biased? Is what's their, what, what's their mindset when they wrote it? You know, it's, it, it's, it, 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 it happened a long time ago and we can only take what we can take from it. I, I'm going to say when, when, when you look at, at the, the sort of social historical aspects of it though, um, especially yeah. in, in places like this were it was actually you know it's quite a rural area a lot of these um so-called witches were were actually you know they were the wise women of, of the villages uh, and they yeah. were who the people used to go to if if they had a headache if, if they wanted to put a, a, a curse on somebody who'd upset them or if they wanted a love portion for instance or something like that these were the people that, that they went to and a lot of the time these people actually did believe themselves that they had these skills and these powers to be able to sort of you know heal people and, and manipulate situations so. hmm. every village most probably had a, a a wise man or a wise woman that 
you know, yeah. knew a little bit more. After a little while, maybe it went to their head and they thought that they were a little bit better than everyone else. But who knows? I mean, it's an interesting time in history, yeah, but no. in our way. So before we end this episode, I, I do have a question that I want to ask you. I know ghost hunting, everybody's got their own way of doing it and, and everybody sort of has got their own favorite places. But if I was to say to you, okay, here's a blank check, as much money as you want to use, as much equipment or as little equipment or as a bigger team that you want to use, what would be the one place that you'd really want to go and investigate? That's a very good question. Um, probably the Queen Mary, the ship, or in America, isn't it? Mm, it's now a, um, a yeah. like a museum. A, you can visit it and do your, you can do ghost hunts. They have um, yeah. functions on there. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, it is quite a, a place to, you can, I mean, you can go there and you can do an investigation. Oh. It's a group thing. Um, it's a massive, you know, it's, it's a massive ship, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I, I would like to, I would like to go in and not take any equipment with me and just, just go in and, and see how I feel just me on my own, see what I can pick up. The other place actually a little bit close to home would be probably the tower of London. I mean, I have visited there as a visitor during the day with the throngs of, of, um, of tourists that, that go and and look around there um but i think somewhere i mean somewhere like that's obviously got massive amounts of history um going back almost a thousand years and and i think to just be able to spend time there when it was quiet without the throngs of of tourists um and again just see what i feel what i could you know what i could pick up just the whole ambience of the place i think will be really interesting Mm, definitely uh when you're on your own and it's it's like anywhere when it when when the building any building really yeah. l- large building small building but when it closes and all the people leave and you're on your own it it kind of changes i mean I, there was a place i used to work and it was a, a medium-sized factory and i was one of the sometimes i was one of the last people to to leave um in in the evening and it was always a very because it was such a bustling busy place and in the evening when you would be one of maybe two or three people in the building leaving it always had a different ambience about it it was always it had a different feel and i think that if you could kind of you know you could transmorph that into a a haunted building somewhere like the tower of london that's got you know a lot of history and and there's a lot of stuff that's gone on there and if you could take away the tourists and remove everyone and just be you on your own uh you know you could just freewheel it there uh, I think that the whole building would become completely different, and you would feel completely different as well. Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you. I think your senses change. I think. I think the way that that you you see things and hear things and feel things change in in situations like that. I think your senses become a lot more heightened. Mm. So, so anyway, Craig. Um, just before we end, before we we've come to the end of this episode now, and and it's been an interesting conversation, but. Um, what's what have you got in store for you know 2023 uh the podcast what moving forward what have you got some what guests you got coming on what directions are you going in um well i've got a couple of very interesting people coming up in the next few weeks with regards to the paranormal they they are members of uh, investigation groups so it'll be interesting to talk to them about how they conduct their investigations i am i, I do try and, and get different types of guests on there so UFOs and ufology and, and cryptozoology and that sort of thing, mix it up as much as I possibly can. Um, I'm also doing some research at the moment for a third book, which is as yet untitled, um, but it is a little bit different to, to the um, subjects that I've written about in, in, in the other two books. So, so this is 
this is a little bit different and I think it's going to be, um, I've got some really great material which I'm sort of looking at it from a little bit more of a scientific angle. So hopefully um, should be, I should start writing that soon. So so yeah, it's going to be a busy year for me again. Hopefully I'll keep, I'll keep the podcast going and uh and just get lots of uh, lots of interesting guests on there excellent well i hope you do keep the podcast going because i do enjoy listening to it and i've had some very interesting guests on there as a, as a podcast host yourself you'll know that it, it is it is a constant um battle to, <laughs> to find people to come on, on on the show you know and and i try and sort of book people maybe months two months ahead try and sort of keep ahead of it in, in that way. So, I mean, if, if anybody's listening to this and, you know, they want to come on my podcast, um, then by all means, get in contact with me through through my website and I'm, I'm quite happy to talk to anybody. I hope everybody enjoyed this conversation. I did. I'm sure Craig will be back uh, later in the year. Uh, we'll do like a little bit of a catch up and find out what he's been up to. But uh, I hope everybody uh, enjoyed this episode. And thanks again, Craig, for coming on. It was, uh, it, it was a really interesting conversation. And, uh, Until next time, everyone, speak to you soon.